2: to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody.
3: And I'm Ali.
2: And we are very excited to be joined by Brendan Ballou, who is a federal prosecutor and served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's antitrust division, which is a mouthful, uh, and is also the author of Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage uh, America, uh, we will turn it over to Wajahat Ali. Brendan, prepare yourself for the Wajahat movie phone introduction that we've come to enjoy so much.
3: Brendan Balou, special counsel at the Department of Justice, was part of the original team that brought suit in U.S. v. Google and leads the department's work on private equity and interlocking directorates. He's also a graduate of Columbia University and Stanford Law School. As Daniel said, his book Plunder. Private Equity's plan to pillage America will be published in the first week of May. That's why I pretty much just do this podcast, Brendan, for moments like that. I feel like a celebrity. Thank you. Uh, It's it's a mouthful. You know, we're we're talking about (laughs) private equity. And before people snooze and turn off, uh, I'm glad we have you on here because and right before we started talking, I said, listen, I'll confess, Brendan. I don't know how these people make money. Like when I hear private equity and all the damage they've done, I'm a simple, unfrozen caveman lawyer, and, and I don't want to admit it in public, I still don't get it. And then you kind of comforted me and said, oh, yeah, it took me halfway into the book to realize what these people actually do and how they make money. So that made me feel good. For the rest of the folks who are listening, private equity, we keep hearing about it. What is it? How do these people make so much money? And how is it so influential in our current political system?
4: Well, thank you so much for having me, and I, I agree it's it's a great question to start with because too few people to ask it. And I should just say off the top of my off the top that um, you know my views are in my personal capacity and not necessarily reflecting those of the Department of Justice.
3: Your job so, is safe. Well done, <laughs> at least for now.
4: The <laughs> interview's just now. started. So, uh, what is private equity? Uh, the basic idea is very simple. So, private equity firms take a little bit of their own money some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy companies. They then make operational and financial changes with the aim of selling those companies for a profit a few years later. So at core, it's a really simple idea. Um, The problem that we've got and the reason that we see all these negative consequences in prisons, in nursing homes, in veterinary clinics, in OBGYN clinics, um, is really three things. One is that private equity firms tend to invest just for the short term. So they're trying to get a a profit in just a few years. Second thing is that they tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt, and they tend to extract a lot of fees. Mm. And then the third thing, and sort of maybe the most interesting for us unfrozen caveman lawyers, is private equity firms are very good at insulating themselves from legal liability for their own actions and their actions of the companies that they buy. And so, when you have those three problems—you know, short-termism, lots of debt and fees, and insulation from liability—it creates a lot of perverse incentives that lead to the kind of bad consequences that we see.
2: So let let's break it down because these people, right—the um, uber wealthy. This is this is essentially how the uber wealthy um, get that status. How are they protected? From uh, not having any accountability or liability for the debt that they take on and for the problems that they cause. Break that down for us.
4: So, I, I can tell a really quick story that maybe gives an example. So, Carlyle is a very large private equity firm, and it bought uh, HCR ManorCare, which was once the largest, second largest nursing home chain in America. And they executed a bunch of tactics that sort of eviscerated the nursing home company, um, mm. you know, it required them to cut staffing, ultimately complaints by residents spiked dramatically. Eventually, people start suing Carlisle for the effects in these nursing homes. And in fact, one family sues for wrongful death because one of their moms um, falls, hits her head because there's no no, her, no nurse to help her. Now, when the family sues Carlisle for wrongful death, Carlisle files a motion to dismiss and says, oh, no, no, we don't technically own ManorCare. Rather, we merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through a series of shell companies ultimately own the assets of ManorCare. And that was enough to confuse the judge to actually get the case against Carlisle dismissed. Mm. And That's just one example. There's a lot of legal doctrines out there that essentially make it possible for private equity firms to control the businesses they buy, but not actually be responsible when those businesses do bad
3: things. You know, in the book, you I mean, the book's title, again, is Plunder, Private Mm -hmm. Equity's Plan to Pillage America, a pretty first of all, very well done with the alliteration and the P words, but very powerful words, right? Like you sit there and I was just listening to what you said with nursing homes. You know, I had a grandmother, she stayed with us. Uh, You know, I've had elders in my life and it just like enrages me. It it sounds like comic book villains, like amped up on the worst aspects of capitalism who prey like vampires on the Mm. weakest and most marginalized. That, that, That was just my take from what you just said. And, and, and you said nursing homes. I mean, if you can't connect the dots, like, how, why would a private equity person mm-hmm. sit there and go, you know what? Nursing homes. Let me, there, there's some good money to be made there.
4: Well, it's really interesting. One of the surprising parts of the book was to realize that a lot of businesses that private equity firms buy aren't targeted towards the rich, but rather to the poor. And if you're in the business of making money, you'd sort of think that you'd go after the rich people. But the businesses that a lot of private equity firms target, whether it's nursing homes, um, prison services, mobile homes, um, uh, various healthcare services, uh, the the advantage of going after people without money is often they don't really have an alternative. So if you buy the business and raise the price or lower the quality of care, working class people have fewer options about where to go elsewhere. Um, so I think that's that's part of what's driving these these firms towards those kinds of businesses. I will say, at least personally, I try not to personalize the stories about the people that run private equity firms. Um, I've talked with various private equity leaders. Some of them are very nice, personable people. Um, I think that there's a line of attack that tends to say that these folks are either evil geniuses to their critics or sort of masters of the universe to their, to their proponents. Mm. Um, what I'm trying to say is it's actually the incentives that we've created in the law that make the private equity business model possible and that create all these bad consequences. So you don't really need to replace the people. You need to change the laws.
2: So, and then funny enough, because in order to change the laws, you actually do need to replace the people. Um, So, let's talk about how Congress, elected officials play a major role in the lack of accountability and responsibility, and why private equity is able to operate. And why, as you say, uh, as supervillains, but when I heard the title Plunder, what I thought of were a bunch of pirates, Right. right? We're a bunch of pirates that are setting out to conquer, um, and, and to steal. Right. Um, and, and so I, when I think about this, in order for that to be successful, in order for private equity to have ballooned into such an industry that it is, you would need to have really favorable politicians in your pocket in order to create policies that would then be laws that, um, allow you to make as much money as possible without having. Accountability. So, talk about that.
4: So, I think private equities in industry has probably been more successful in government than any other industry out there. And there have been a lot of successful industries. Um, Private equity and investment firms have contributed, I believe, nine hundred million dollars to federal candidates since nineteen ninety. So, we're talking real money. Um, And more than just the money, it's the people. Um, Mm -hmm. You look at who private equity firms employ. It includes. Um, secretaries of state, defense, treasury, Mm -hmm. um, two speakers of the House, a vice president, um, chairman of the SEC and FCC, any number of senators and congresspeople. Um, And that kind of sort of bench has been really useful as private equity firms have advanced their agenda in Congress. I think one of the most important are sort of their. For them, most important is what's called the carried interest loophole. And you know, as soon as you say that expression, your, your your eyes sort of start to glaze over because it's such a boring term. But it's really important because it's this law that essentially allows private equity executives to pay a lower tax rate than you know. Certainly, I do. I don't know, you know, how's you know how much money you guys make off podcasting, but they probably pay a lower rate than you guys do too. I'm
2: pretty sure.
3: <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, I'm killing it. I don't know about you all, but I'm (laughs) I'm making some surprise money off this podcast.
4: Exactly. They give me a free falafel
3: sandwich every Friday, so I'm happy.
4: Well, so for everybody except Waj, um, (laughs) we should be concerned about uh, the the carried interest loophole. And the really interesting thing is um, politicians have been trying to kill this loophole since literally 2007. Um, Then Senator Obama campaigned against it. Um, uh, He tried to end it while he was president. Oddly enough, President Trump was actually a strong opponent of the carried interest loophole, and try, and and repeatedly spoke out against it. Um, President Biden has has opposed it, and every time um, it's been met with failure to the to such an extent that, in fact, private equity firms have been able to gain new tax advantages um, uh, in the in the last two or three years. And I think I saw just yesterday um, uh, new legislation was introduced to further deregulate the industry. So, um, private equity has been enormously successful in that regard.
3: You know, what? what's so painful about that is, you know, we were talking about the 2008 economic crisis right before we joined up, and, and we're talking about our pre, my previous legal career, and that's when I graduated. And that was a result of similar individuals who took advantage of lax uh, regulation, and thanks to human greed, and thanks to lack of oversight, helped create the worst recession that that previous generation had ever seen. Well, we lived through it. And now you fast forward uh, 15 years, right? And here we are listening to you saying, oh, by the way, there's even less regulation now. Uh, and I'm sitting here wondering, how can the, those who are entrusted to you know, hold uh, individuals accountable, uh, those who are entrusted to be the guardrails, how can we actually expect Congress, Brendan, to do its job when, much like the pharmaceutical industry and human nature, you realize, well, there's going to be a career after Congress. And I could sit on the board or I could be an advisor. And if I'm too harsh against them, well, they won't go to me. They'll just go to the other person who's kind, right? Is there any way to take away the incentive in Congress? uh, You know, to, to, because just human nature, Brendan says, like, if I'm sitting there, like I got kids, I got to send them to college. What am I going to do after I leave Congress or the House? I'm gonna go become a lobbyist or advisor or join a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. Like, so who watches the watchmen?
4: So, um, unless we figure out a way to change human nature, I think that there's always <laughs> gonna be strong incentives for people to to go work for private equity firms or other folks that are are willing to pay well. Um, and I will say that that Congress, I think, has has uniquely struggled to address this issue. Um Uh, partly for the reasons that you suggested around contributions and people thinking about their their sort of future employment after elected office. That said, as we're thinking about, you know, sort of how to constrain the private equity business model to make it less less destructive, I actually think that there are a lot of levers of power, not just Congress. So, you know, one of the things that's been really encouraging has been to see um, activism, for instance, around um, prison phone systems, which are owned by and large by Mm -hmm, private equity mm -hmm. firms. Um, Bianca Tylek and Worth Rises to, to shout out just one organization, but there are many others have been enormously successful at, um, sort of reshaping or stopping the, the business model there. Um, that's been happening at a state and local level, but also at a federal one. I think that there've been similar movements going on around, for instance, um, uh, nursing homes, which we were just talking about to get minimum staffing. Um, there's now rulemaking going on at the Department of Health and Human Services on that. Um, so I think, understandably, we tend to look to Congress to solve these problems. But there's actually a lot of different levers of power that can fundamentally change private
0: equity and change their incentives for the better. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: You know, what? I want to go back to one of the things that you said um, at the beginning when, we, when Wajid asked the question, well, why would you go into a nursing home? Like, why is that? A business that you would get into, and the response that you gave was that you know a lot of these private equity firms go after low low income, um, uh, I guess needs industries places where these people go to, and I want to I want to talk about that and what is it because one of the things that I find and I know that we are at a period in our society where we really do want to eat the rich right where you have you have you have a a, a, bock, pocket, a pocket of people who are taking you know space shuttles to you know to outer space and then you have people that can't put food on their table the pandemic illuminated what many of us who have worked in justice areas have seen right for so long and then it showed us like look at look at who you call essential when it's needed and then look at what is happening and so you know when we see these things, and I know that it's not just activism as a whole and your and your book does a lot to illuminate this, but how do we make the correlation between these people, not necessarily as you're saying, you know, oh, you, know, you talk to private equity people and they're not necessarily bad people, but they sure as hell are targeting communities that are marginalized and underserved. And when I see that kind of targeting, all I think about is bad, right? So I, I'm trying to understand, like, one: How do those that are being taken advantage of wait, like, are woken up to that consciousness, like, understand that they are being taken advantage of? And then I guess if they are, then what recourse do people do people mm. have?
4: Yeah. No, it's a great question. And I think it's a deep one about how does activism work on, on these sorts of issues. One of the challenges that we've got with private equity is it's everywhere and nowhere. Um, you know, private equity firms spent one point two trillion dollars buying businesses in 2021. And yet, mm. you know, it's very unlikely that you're gonna see a company, you know, your veterinary clinic say that it's a Mars-owned company or that your um, you know, nursing home chain is a is a Carlisle business or something like that. Um, it's hard to, to see where private equity is. Um, you guys are, you know, your podcast and others are sort of doing the hard work of helping to educate people about the idea of private equity and all the areas that it's spread. I the The thing that makes me hopeful is I have seen a lot of activism on specific issues where private equity is active. So prison mm-hmm. services right. we just mentioned. And I have to say, I think Actually, activists are uniquely powerful on this in a way that they aren't on some other economic justice issues. So, just to make that very specific, private equity firms um, need to get their money from somewhere to buy up businesses. And they tend to get it either from sovereign wealth funds, which is other countries, or from pension funds. So, you know, the teachers' Mm. union or the police union or whatever it happens to be. those institutions actually listen to their members and are susceptible to political um, pressure. And in fact, there have been pension funds that have withdrawn investments from private equity firms for various sort of political or moral reasons. So I actually think that if people can um, sort of be made aware of how private equity is, is shaping their life, there's actually a lot of different ways that they, can, they, that they can sort of move the
3: needle on the issue that they care about. And it's also so disgusting, right? That they raid pension funds <laughs> to to fund future raids and pillages. Uh and and if these things go wrong, who gets screwed, Brendan? Right? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, yeah, no, you know, there's there've been sort of funny stories about pension funds investing in private equity firms that ultimately whose portfolio companies ultimately engage in anti-union campaigns. So there's sort of a a snake eating its own tail sort of quality to it. I, I'd add, you know, the the potentially concerning in addition to that is, um, you know, those have been the historical sources of private equity money, but um, there's been a concerted push for private equity firms to get access to um, 401k funds. So, you know, Waj, he's very rich. He, you know, cares about the carried interest loophole and such. I have 12 falafels in storage. Lots of invest, you know, lots of falafels, lots of investments. Um, His 401k money could potentially be um push to invest in private equity firms in the next few years, thanks to deregulation that's happened over the past few so years. So I wouldn't who know would
2: about it. Who would be making that? I was like, wait, who would be making that decision?
3: I'm going to go up check my 401k right now with like the $12 right in it.
4: Yes, so it, it hasn't happened yet. So just to give you guys some color, wow. um, in uh, 2019, 2020, um, the Department of Labor in conjunction with the Securities and Exchange Commission issued a letter that essentially insulated um, 401k investment managers from liability for investing in private equity firms. Now, there are, any securities lawyer is going to quibble with some things that I just said there, but that's the that's the short version of the story. Um, that letter has since been partially walked back, but not entirely. Um, what it means is basically private equity firms are now in sort of the active campaign mode uh, to try to get. 401k money in the next few years paul mcleod at capital forum has done really important reporting on this
2: so like okay let me let me let me pull pull myself back from from the edge because i want to scream um what is the goal here brendan is it just like because at at some point i we look at the politics of this and i look at you know the the greed of it all and Mm. i'm thinking to myself wow so it's not enough to go after certain people's pensions because pensions really don't exist right in the United States the, in in the way that they did in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. That kind of was eroded uh, through through Reagan and the Republicans, right? So it's, it's inshallah pension,
3: Daniel. Right. inshallah yeah, pension,
2: right? So so that's gone. You then have 401ks, which most or you know most companies and organizations. Okay, maybe they do. Maybe if you're lucky, they do 10% Mm. investment on top of what you're already investing. And your hope there, right, is that at some point, uh, inshallah, you'll be able to retire at the ripe old age of 65, when of course, you know, our life expectancy is backsliding. And that's been for the last three years. So maybe you get a good 10 uh, 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 of time. So now if they go after four, is is the goal just to bankrupt us all? Like, is the goal just to create like a permanent, like fiefdom, underclass, indentured servitude with the select 1% on top and the rest of us just unequivocally fucked?
4: I don't think any of the private equity leaders think of themselves in such political terms. Mm. I think what they, I think many of the, you know, uh, the head of Carlisle Group says that private equity is the world's uh, most noble profession. And I'm paraphrasing wow. slightly. <laughs> um, <laughs>
3: Did he write uh, that
4: in the Bible? Face-eating
3: leopard says eating faces are good for humanity.
4: <laughs> you know, and it's funny. vitamin rich. Does, yeah, he does have a sense of humor. He may have been saying it ironically. I don't know. I've only read the transcript. But he, um, uh, you know, the the largest private equity firms have extraordinary ambitions. Um, KK, uh, KKR and Blackstone um, aim to have a trillion dollars in assets under management each in the next few years. Um, so we're, we're talking about, you know... Um, uh, wealth that's on the magnitude of, you know, a small country. Um, so they, they they certainly have big ambitions.
3: It's, uh, you know, I go back to what I said, super villain. Uh, and, and I was very aware of the the pirate language, but this is, you know, this is, the, it, for me at least, and, and I only speak for myself, uh, Brendan, I hope democracy-ish doesn't get uh, offended and, and fire me. But this is, you know, human greed run rampant, right? Just yeah. when you can instead of being content, you're like, well, why did why not? If I can get money from the nursing homes, if I could take money from the housing industry, if I could take money from healthcare, if I could take money from prisoners, let's do it. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said, because I want you to connect the dots for folks, right? The prison industrial complex. Uh, in the United States of America, we incarcerate uh, more than 2 million people, more than any other country on earth, right? Uh, it's It's a very profitable industry that wrecks havoc uh, on generations, on communities. Uh, when you talked about the, the phone, you know, both my parents were incarcerated once, so I'm very familiar with uh, the, just the struggle <laughs> to talk and how much it used to cost, right? People had no idea. Just connect the dots for us uh, about how private equity targeted the private industrial complex, uh, excuse me, the private prison complex and how, like you mentioned, activists were able to fight back. I think if you can give us that narrative arc, it will be really helpful just to give yeah. us some hope.
4: So private equity firms have been very interested in sort of every aspect of prison services. So you mentioned phones, um, Securis, Global Tel Link have all at various times been owned by private equity firms. There have been serious accusations that they have significantly raised the rates to such an extent that, at least in 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 some places, I don't want to ascribe it to either of those two com- companies specifically, um, you know, it could cost $25 for a 15 minute call, um, which is just pretty extraordinary for when you consider most people who are in prison. Um, but it's not just phones. Uh, private equity firms also got very interested in prison healthcare services um, mm. and bought up the leading, leading prison healthcare services. There've been a lot of lawsuits um, against those companies. Um, there's a very tragic one, for instance, of a woman who was, forced to give birth by herself alone in a cell because um, the contractor refused to provide her care. Um, And then sort of ancillary services that you might not think about. One is um, a prison release card, uh, which is back in the day, if, um, you know, Danielle or I had to spend, you know, the night in jail for a DUI or something like that, I get picked up. And, um, you know, I would give whatever cash was in my pocket to to, to the jail. When I came out in the morning, they'd give me the cash back.
3: That was in the movies in the 80s and 90s, if you remember that. They used to show that.
4: Yeah, exactly. The beginning of Ocean's 11. So, you know, like, um, but now if I were to go, you know, get a DUI and come out the next morning, uh, I wouldn't, in many places, I would no longer get cash. I would get uh, a debit card. Um, And that debit card would nominally have the money that I would have on it. But uh, there would be an activation fee. There would be a withdrawal fee. There would be a balance inquiry fee. And as alleged, there'd even be an inactivity fee. Um so that was that the company that was providing those was uh ultimately owned by a private equity firm, so it 's an area where p e firms have been extremely interested um as you said, there have been reasons for hope. A number of activist organizations have been extraordinarily successful at um prohibiting um private equity firms and their portfolio companies from gouging um prisoners on phone services specifically. Yeah. There's been local legislation, there has been state legislation, and as of last year, there's been federal legislation, and I believe soon, perhaps, rulemaking at the FCC. And that's an area where I think activists were very smart to focus on a very specific, tangible issue. Um, and I was I was talking to an older activist last night who's in her 80s, and she said, you know, it's it's hard to have a movement if you don't have something to move. And, you know, they ha- they had a specific solution in mind.
0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: You know, the thing that I find, I guess, and maybe this is a product of what Democrats, what we do wrong, which is concentrate all of our attention and all of our activism towards Congress, towards the power of the executive branch the, you know, Congress and saying like they alone can fix it. And I think that what I'm hearing from you is that so much has been done, but it has only been it has been done at the state and local level and not at the national level. And so when I think about because I I remember reading recently about the the phone charges. And it never, it never these things don't occur as they're happening because they've always happened. It's like, oh, well, it's always been that way. There's always been, you see it in the movies, the collect call from prison, like that's just the way that it is. But you don't think about how it harms communities and how they're already gouged when they're down and out. And so I'm wondering like your thoughts about how we kind of shift the thinking and the conversation from Congress alone can fix it. This, this place that has become a just you know, it's kind of like Florida. It's where rights and policies go to die, right? So I'm wondering, like, how we shift the narrative and conversation that we have around something that, frankly, you know, when we said today we're going to be talking about private equity, I was just like, oh, so this is really elitist conversation today, but it isn't, right? And so how do we we shift that?
4: I think it's a great question, and I think your point that this is not an elitist conversation, that this is something that affects... Every person in America, if you, um, you know, go to the veterinarian, if you go to the OBGYN, if you buy contacts or jeans, uh, you may, you know, if you pour water in some towns and pay your water bill, you may ultimately be paying a private equity firm. I I mean, when we, uh, you know, I say in the book, it's it's private equity literally right in front of you in that um, we license the font from a company that was owned by a private equity firm. So it it surrounds all of us. It's not an elitist conversation. Now, how to sort of move that conversation towards action is, is, I think, a really important question that you ask, which is, there are a number of organizations that are really doing important work already. Um, Americans for Financial Reform, the Private Equity Stakeholder Project have been active. American Economic Liberties Project have been doing has been doing important work on this. All of these groups have been educating people on how private equity is shaping their lives. I think we just need to think creatively about where the levers of power are out you know sort of across our government and beyond um the last chapter of the book is frankly too long in sort of listing out very specifically by agency by the states by localities what can we be doing what can litigants be doing and what can activists be doing um i think what we just need to do is recognize that private equity is more than just you know um uh, a cartoon of people you know people being greedy or something like that. Mm. It's a business model that we created 40 years ago and we keep creating sort of flawed business models every 40 years in America. If it wasn't private equity it would have been savings and loans, if it wasn't SNLs it would have been conglomerates, if it wasn't conglomerates it would have been trusts. You know, it's we just do this every couple decades. And if it's
3: something that we invented through the law, we can change it through the law as well. You know, you say it's something that we keep doing, right? So here here's my cynical take on it right <laughs> it's like savings and loans disaster derivatives disaster right now dot-com boom back in the day right uh, uh, you know the the mortgage-backed security is just like every five to ten years the same players who wreak havoc on the marginalized on the middle class on the poor mm-hmm. get to fail up and do it again yep And, you know, with private equity firms and what you've laid out in the past half hour, and I really appreciate it, Brendan, and I I hope our listeners uh, find it illuminating as well, because I don't think, you know, there's something what Daniel said is that you people feel like, oh, this is an elitist conversation. I'm a simple person. I don't understand it. And then when you ask people, can you explain derivatives? They're like, "Uh, the people in Wall Street couldn't explain derivatives. And and even like, you know, so I think that's important for people to know that people who are allegedly smarter than us aren't that smart. And oftentimes they <laughs> act like con men, and oftentimes they're just w- winging it, right? But I, I do feel a sense of hope from what the examples you've given me with activists doing stuff, but I, I, m- just maybe you can check me on this. I feel like anytime a senator really cares, like an a Elizabeth Warren, whether you like her or not, whatever, but like when someone's ringing the alarm and says, yo, this is happening, she gets shut down, the powers that yep. be. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but you, you know, you talk about uh the wealth, the power, the, the 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 intersection between politics and media and business. She's seen as radical. She's sidelined by her own party. So how do we get to a, is it gonna get to a point, Brendan, where they literally raid our 401ks to make the majority stand up and say enough, right? Like what's the what's the breaking point? And and pardon me again for my cynicism. Because I'm 42 years old and I see this happening every 10 years. Mm -hmm.
4: So it's a good question. And I mean, what I always point people towards is, you know, private equity, the business model is a big problem, um, but it's a problem we've solved at least once before. Um, Private equity, at least as it's currently structured, is extremely similar to the trusts of the 1910s and 1920s. Um, And, you know, the oil trust, you know, the oil trust, steel trust, tobacco trust, and so forth. Um, and ultimately, in that period, we decided to constrain the, the, the trust and at least break some of them up through the populist and ultimately progressive movements. You, know, you have a time of enormous political activity that creates you know, the FTC, creates our modern antitrust laws, creates the progressive income tax, our first labor laws, environmental laws, and so forth. So you know, I, it, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about mm. this and, and sort of just be blindly optimistic but I will say there have been times in American history where we actually have come together to sort of rebuild our legal structures to make them fundamentally more fair. And what we did in the 1920s and 30s ultimately lasted for two generations until the 1970s. So, you know, it, perhaps, you know, I get that, you know, you're in your early 40s, I'm in my late 30s, you know, maybe we just need to live live a little longer and we can see these, these, these movements succeed. <laughs>
2: Um, Brendan, this conversation has been so illuminating, um, and I really do hope that our, our audience, um, takes hold of something that again, is made purposefully to feel very elite and very out of touch for the average person. Um, and, and that is the purpose, uh, of it all. So we appreciate that. Um, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody.
3: And I'm Wajatali, and Brendan's book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, is going to be out in the first week of May. Pick it up.
2: We will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.